Now, the title of this sermon tonight is A Salty and a Flashy Lifestyle. Um, Jesus is calling us here to live salty lives. He's calling us to live lives of flashiness. Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. Jesus is calling us to be flashy. He's calling us to be salty. Now, granted, Jesus is using this word differently than the way we use it today. Right? In our context, saltiness is actually a code for bitterness and anger. Right? You get uh, salty after your car is sideswiped and the person doesn't leave any sort of insurance information. You feel salty when your so-called friend is gossiping behind your back. You feel salty when someone steals from you. You feel salty when that significant other decides to break up with you. Well, that type of saltiness is not what we are talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. As we will see, we're talking about something completely different. But here we see Jesus also calls us to live flashy lives. Again, he's using the word in a different way than we would typically use this kind of phraseology today. He's not telling us to live a flashy lifestyle in the sense that we're walking around in the nicest clothes, wearing the the freshest pair of sneakers, and uh, wearing the platinum watch. When he is calling us to flashiness, he's calling us to something else. But in our culture, we think staying in the nicest hotels eating the nicest food at the nicest restaurants and driving the nicest car from the hotel to the restaurant. That's what we think of when we think of flashiness, living in Blackhawk and driving a Benz. These are examples of what the world would call flashiness. These are examples of what the world would call salty. But that's not what we're talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Jesus uses both of these terms in the precise opposite sense that we use them today. I think that's what's kind of humorous here. Jesus shows us that a salty life is actually being content in the midst of sorrow, not bitter. Jesus shows us that a flashy lifestyle is not made up of of living a luxurious lifestyle. Instead, it's living a content lifestyle in the face of those who are living a flashy lifestyle. Now, we find this discussion begin the Sermon on the Mount. This is what begins the sermon. In chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus begins by telling us the type of lifestyle we are to live as God's people. This is is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus. So let's begin briefly overviewing what we discussed last week. Remember, Matthew began his gospel, we talked about this last week, by identifying who Jesus is. You have this Jewish carpenter come onto the scene. Who in the world is he? So Matthew spends the first four chapters highlighting the fact that Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Israel. Jesus is the better uh, son of David. Jesus is the better son of Abraham. And he's here to usher in the kingdom of God. Now, as we begin chapter 5, 
Matthew begins recounting the Sermon on the Mount. And remember, uh, this is the first of five different speeches in the book of Matthew. So this is the very first one. And as we start chapter 5, Matthew sets the stage. Verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now again, we pointed this out last week, but there are significant details that we cannot miss here. First off, Jesus is ascending the mountain in order to deliver a message to his people. He's being compared with Moses. Just like Moses, Jesus is giving a law from a mountain. But there's a contrast drawn here between Jesus and Moses. Unlike Moses, Jesus is the one actually speaking when the law comes to the people. Moses was just an intermediary. He was just intermediating for God and delivering God's message to the people. But for Christ, when Jesus speaks, God is speaking. So we need to listen. Notice at the end of verse 1, it says that Jesus' disciples came to him. We need to come to our King and hear what He has to say. We need to come to Christ and see what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Well, in verses 3 through 12, Jesus begins to portray the lifestyle that His disciples are to live. Here's what we read. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, these are some of Jesus' most famous words. We call this section of the sermon the Beatitudes. This is how he begins the sermon. And in fact, when we begin to study these words and compare them with what he's about to say in the rest of the sermon, we see that this is an introduction to the sermon where he's actually introducing the themes he's about to talk about throughout the rest of the sermon. And when we actually read Matthew carefully, we see that the Beatitudes here, the very first uh, uh, words of Jesus' sermon, uh, they're actually, these themes are carried throughout the rest of the book of Matthew. So this is a a section of Matthew we cannot miss. We need to understand this if we're going to understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We need to understand this if we're going to understand the rest of Jesus' teaching in the book of Matthew. And we spoke about this last week uh, some, but I want to point this out again. Jesus begins with the word blessed 
and remember, we made a distinction. This isn't, this isn't the word blessed. This is actually a different word. This is not what is going on here. Jesus is not giving you a roadmap for how you can be blessed by God. This is not some step-by-step process for how you can earn God's favor. These are not if-then promises. He's not saying, if you do this, then God is going to show you favor. He's going to bless you. That's not what's going on here. We discussed this last week. Jesus uses this, this unique word that does not mean blessing in that sort of sense. What he's saying is that this is the life you were created for. This is the good life. That's why we talked about last week. Some translations will even translate this word happy. Right? This is the happy life. This is the good life. This is what it means to flourish as a human being. And so I ask, what do you think of when you think of the good life? What do you think the good life consists of? Do you typically think of a six-figure salary? Do you think of a specific home in a specific neighborhood? Do you think of a gated community? Maybe, maybe your idea of what a good life is consists of a large host of friends. Do you think having great friends with whom you can share great meals and share laughter is the good life? Is that how you would understand the good life? Do you think the good life is having a well-functioning family? Maybe for you, the good life is a life of ease. It's sailing on a yacht through exotic islands in the middle of the Caribbean. Or maybe it's a warm cabin in the mountains. What is the image on Instagram that makes your heart think in awe of what's going on in that image? What makes you think that's the good life? That is what I want from this world. You know, these verses here confront the idols of our heart in in a profound way. If you think that the good life is this, a a home with a six-figure salary, and that's your vision of a good life, you need to ask yourself, Am I living this life for something other than Christ? What, what is it that's driving me? What has taken root in my heart and given me purpose in life? Jesus is fighting against all of those things with these words. We all want comfort in life. We all want ease. We all want no tears. We want no pain. We want enjoyments of life without any cost. We want comfort. We want to be the prominent one in the room. We want to be the one who tells a joke and everyone around us laughs. We want to to stand up and when we stand up, other people look at us and respect us. We want to be strong. We want to be powerful. We want other people to enjoy us. We want to have possessions. We want to have the top of the line car. We want to have the house with all of the amenities in it, the built-in home gym. We want the movie theater in our house, right, right in my living room. I want the hot tub that doesn't need any maintenance ever. 
We want the perfect landscaping. Trust me, I, I just replaced the lawn in my backyard. I want perfect landscaping. I mean, when you think of the good life, what is it that you are thinking? Jesus is doing something here that we can't miss. He is flipping our comprehension or perception of what the good life is on its head. You know, in a sense, with these words, Jesus is smashing every one of the idols placed within our hearts. He's smashing every one of the idols that we decide to hold so dear. He's showing us that satisfaction does not come from our idols like pleasure and comfort and wealth and friends. And he does so by showing us that satisfaction comes somewhere from something else. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, here's what the good life is. It belongs to those who are poor in spirit. Those who who come to God empty-handed. Those who come to God not boasting of what they have accomplished, but in desperate need. Neediness. The good life is neediness. Blessed are those who mourn. Here's the good life. Tears. Now, notice, this isn't a character quality. Jesus isn't saying, go out and cry more. (laughs) You want to have a good life? Go out and cry more. That's not what he's saying. No, he's pointing out to his disciples that if they're going to follow him, life is going to be costly. You follow Jesus, tears will come. Yet in your mourning, you will experience the good life because in your mourning, God will come to you and comfort you. Blessed are the meek. You see, those who live to show their power and their confidence, they are not the ones who inherit the earth. It is those who are meek, those who are gentle, those who are humble, those who inherit the earth resist the temptation to show dominance over other people because they know God is king. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, it's not the delicacies of this life that are going to give us pleasure, that are going to give us the satisfaction that we crave. Right? He, he's using this terminology that, that is associated with dining, fine dining. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Not the, not the fine foods, not the delicacies. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I mean, we're so easily ensnared by the trap of thinking that satisfaction comes when we experience the delicacies of this life. Jesus tells us we cannot be, be, be taken up by those lies. Satisfaction comes when those of us seek righteousness. That's where we find the delicacies of God's presence. You want to be satisfied? Seek righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. 
I mean, this is so countercultural. Jesus is portraying that the powerful, cutthroat, successful leader does not live the good life. Yet our culture tells us the opposite. You want to experience excellence in life? You want to experience success? Imitate Steve Jobs as your role model. Right? Demand excellence from others. And when they don't offer up what you are looking for, throw them under the next passing bus. The good life isn't found in mercy. It's found in the pursuit of excellence no matter the cost. That's what this world would tell you. But Jesus teaches otherwise. The good life is found when you show mercy because such was shown to us. The good life is, is found when we, we offer up what Christ has offered to us. We deserved God's cutthroat scale of excellence, and yet we failed, and then he showed us mercy. Let's do the same to others. Next, blessed are the pure in heart. Again, direct opposition, contradiction to what our society would portray as the good life. This society we live in, the culture that surrounds us, demands that we indulge in impurity and sexual immorality. We are considered prunes if we do not dive in headfirst into the pool of sexual immorality. We're considered crazy for getting married without having first slept with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Right? Prominent members of our society are called bigots because they set up boundaries between themselves and individuals of the opposite sex. Right? It is considered unimaginable and unjust to safeguard yourself by setting up uh, parameters to, to maintain the purity of your marriage. I'm not going to eat alone with a member of the opposite sex. Individual who does that in our society is considered unjust. And let's be honest, we believe the same thing. We believe, we tell ourselves that the good life is found when we indulge in our cravings for physical pleasure. But Jesus says the good life is not found there. The good life is found when we live our lives with upright, pure hearts. Next, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. It's not those who foster bitterness towards others and gossip behind people's backs and and seek revenge who are living the good life. It is the peacemaker. It's the one who seeks peace with his neighbor, with her neighbor. That's the one living the good life. Finally, Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And then he doubles down on this. And he says, blessed are you when other people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil and, uh, against you and falsely on account of my name. You, Jesus is taking it to the next level. To be persecuted is the good life. It starts out, mourning's the good life. It, 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 it's being gentle. It's being meek. That's what it means to live the, the blessed life. And now he takes it to the next level. You are living the life you were created for when you are persecuted. You are living the life of, of a disciple when you are reviled. 
and slandered. Right? If anything is going to make you salty, it's this. Using salty in the cultural understanding of the world today, right? If you want to know what salty, what will make someone salty, revile that person. Slander that person behind their back. That's how you can make someone mad. And yet, Jesus is saying, this is the type of life you were created for. This is what discipleship looks like. This is the good life. Persecution. Slander. Notice these paradoxes at play here. The good life is persecution. The good life is slander. The good life is, is mourning. It's tears. Notice the paradox. This is counterculture. This is not common sense. In order to live in the kingdom of God as a disciple of Christ, we are called to live countercultural lives. And by doing so, we get to experience what we were created for. Like I said earlier, this sort of lifestyle speaks against our idol-seeking hearts because we, we think that we are going to find joy in the extravagant lifestyle. What Jesus says here is, is cutting out the knees from, from our idols. The good life is not found in living the Instagram-worthy lifestyle. It's not found in attaining the keys to the Tesla or getting the perfectly manicured lawn or, or getting the home in the beautiful neighborhood. True joy is found in persecution. True joy is found in being reviled. True joy is experienced when we mourn. But how can that be? The fact that mourners are viewed as though they are flourishing it leaves us perplexed. Right? If you're in Jesus' presence as he's uttering these things for the very first time, you're thinking, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? None of this makes any sense. What do you mean when I'm mourning, I'm living a, a Macarius life? That doesn't make any sense. What he's saying here is that when you are in your lowest state, God can then come and comfort you. When you are poor in spirit, you get to taste the sweetness of God coming to you and providing for you while you are in your needy state. When you are betrayed and reviled, you get to experience the pleasures of drawing near to God. All my friends have forsaken me. All I have left in earth and heaven is you. You don't experience that when you're surrounded by a whole host of good friends eating good food. When you are living a life of tears, you get to experience the comfort of God in a new way. You see, the Beatitudes are not a call to pursue tears so that you might be able to experience God's comfort. Rather, these Beatitudes are a promise that this is what discipleship looks like, tears. And yet, when you experience those tears, you will find joy. This is what discipleship looks like, persecution. But when you experience persecution, rejoice, because you have a place in the kingdom of heaven. You see, to understand the Beatitudes, we also need to come to terms with the reality that Jesus here is, is laying out the, the means of what it, what it looks like to follow him in his example. 
He's highlighting the life of a disciple. And remember that the disciple is not greater than the teacher. The the servant is not greater than the master. Christ is reminding us that as we pursue him, we will be persecuted because he was persecuted. We will be reviled because he was reviled. Again, like I said, Matthew here is is preluding what he's about to say in the rest of the book. Matthew 10, verse 16. Notice what we read here. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts to flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, his own child, and children will rise up against parents to have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Right? That's Jesus' words of encouragement to his disciples as they're about to go out to ministry. You're going to be hated. Verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they did it to me, they're going to do it to you. If they did it to Christ, if he was persecuted, we can't expect anything differently. If he was reviled, why would you anticipate not being reviled for righteousness' sake? But here's the deal. Jesus is comforting us with his words here. He's telling us, when you experience the sorrow, you will have me right there with you. I will come and comfort you. You will have access to the eternal kingdom of God. You have a a, a flourishing life because of the promises you have in the gospel. You see, in order to live out these paradoxical countercultural imperatives, we must first come to terms with the ultimate paradox, Jesus. If we want to live out this paradoxical lifestyle, then we must come into contact, contact with the paradoxical gospel. Jesus lived out the Beatitudes in the most profound of ways. He lived the ultimate paradoxical life, right? He is the example of all the examples of what it looks like to live a countercultural way, in line with the Beatitudes here. The Creator entered into His creation. The ruler of the world left His throne to be born in a manger because they didn't have room for Him in the inn. The only one to ever live a perfect life of love was an outcast, even in his own family. The same being who created all of mankind to be his servants entered into mankind to serve mankind. The Son of God came speaking peace to his enemies and was mocked in return. The one who came to offer salvation to his own people received judgment and condemnation from his own people. 
The judgment that Jesus experienced was not even his own, but it was ours. Jesus died for the very same people who happened to kill him. He offered forgiveness to those who condemned him. He, he endured the cross, the pain of the cross, the sorrow of the cross, for the joy set before him. What in the world does that even mean, right? Talk about a paradox. He took on death for the sake of life. Jesus was the ultimate example of what it means to live a paradoxical life according to the Beatitudes. Joy is found when you die. That was Jesus' example. He dies for humanity, his own creation, who has rebelled against them, him in order to give them life. And now we get to become partakers of this paradoxical life. We can receive life even though we deserve death. We can receive forgiveness though we deserve judgment. The entire idea that Jesus saved you and me is a paradox. It is countercultural. On its face, it makes no sense. The sinful have been made sinless because the sinless died for the sinful. That makes no sense in the world's eyes, and yet that is what God has done for us. The condemned have been made righteous because the righteous died for the condemned. The spiritually dead now have spiritual life because the only individual in the entire universe who has spiritual life gave spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. We can find joy now in the midst of our weeping. We can offer peace to others when all we want to do is retaliate. We can forgive others when we are persecuted. We can show meekness even when others are showing their dominance because we know that we serve a conquering king. This is the life that Jesus lived and now he's calling us to imitate him as his disciples. Now, as we continue, let me point out that this is the context in which Jesus gives this encouragement to live salty and flashy lifestyles. You are the salt of the earth, verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, there is a natural question here. How does what Jesus is saying here relate to what we just discussed in the Beatitudes? I think it's tempting to think that Jesus' words here aren't related at all. These are two completely opposed, unrelated topics. All these, blessed is the one who does this, blessed who is, is the one who does this. And then he transitions, and now he's talking about saltiness and being a city on a hill. And it's easy to think these are unrelated. And, and, and that's why I think we have so many funny interpretations of what it means to be a city on a hill. 
Right? Think about all the different ways you've heard people explain this. Some of America's founding fathers, for example, they thought that the American experiment was to function as a city on a hill, giving a beacon of hope to all of the nations to see. Now, I like to consider myself patriotic. I love our country. I think we're in a great country. However, our nation is not the city on the hill that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus was not giving these words and thinking forward to the nation of America and saying, one day this city will come. That's not what he's saying. He's not looking at the, the, the future to the, the nation of America. That, that wasn't in his mind when he gave these words. Jesus spoke these words right after the Beatitudes. And his intention was that the church, as his disciples, will, will follow him. And as they follow him, living meek lives, living lives pure in spirit, living lives pure in heart. By doing this, the church will become the light the city sitting on a hill, shining out into the nations. By doing this, the the church will become salt among the world. That's the calling of Christ's disciples. So with that said, what does it even mean to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of the world? These are metaphors, but what do the metaphors even mean? Three quick observations. First, in order to understand these metaphors, we need to first see that both of them are meant to communicate the same thing. The two metaphors are put in parallel. So we aren't necessarily looking at what it means to be salt of the earth. That's one thing over here. Now, what does it mean to be light of the world? That's something totally different. They're the same thing. They're set up in parallel. Second, both metaphors present both negative and positive components. The negative component of being saltless, tasting salt, tasteless salt, is that you are tasteless and you're good for nothing. The negative idea of being a light hidden under a basket is that you're good for nothing. You don't provide anyone light. But then he presents a positive side. He says the benefit of being salty is that you give flavor, you give taste. The benefit of being light is, is that you give light to the entire house. The third component that we need to notice here as we're trying to understand what these metaphors mean is is seen at the end of verse 16. So here, Jesus concludes these two metaphors by explaining what he means, right? How how helpful. Thank you, Jesus. Um, (laughs) Here he explains what he means. He says that as we live our lives according to the Beatitudes, other people will look at us, they will see our good works, and they will give glory to God the Father. So, we live according to the Beatitudes, people see our good works, they glorify God. In other words, as you live out the Beatitudes, you are attaining an opportunity to share Christ with a watching world. As you live a life devoted to God, your good works will shine and others will seek to understand why you are living the way you do. When other people see situations take place in your life and they say, that would make me salty, they're wondering how in the world you are not salty. And in that moment, you are being the salt that Jesus is talking about. Sorry if that's confusing. 
In other words, do you want to be the salt of the earth? Embrace the call to be comforted by Christ in your mourning. If you want to be the light of the world, embrace the calling to suffer like Jesus with joy on your face. If you want to be the light of the world, show mercy to those who do not deserve it because you have been shown mercy. Make peace with those that deserve your hostility because God has shown you peace. And as you begin to show mercy to others, as you begin to to show peace towards others, you can then communicate the reason you are doing that. Your good works provide you an opportunity to speak of the gospel. I think in Jesus' words here, through your good works, other people will see them and then glorify God your Father. That implies that you are also using your words. It's not as though people see you cutting your neighbor's lawn and all of a sudden they start giving glory to God the Father without you ever telling them why in the world you're cutting your neighbor's lawn. Right? That doesn't make any sense. Like, oh man, that was really nice of him. Praise Jesus. Right? No. You need to explain what you are doing and why you are doing it. Let me explain why I am being merciful to you. Let me explain why I'm being a peacemaker in this situation, even though you have shown me nothing but your hostility. It's because of the gospel. It's because of what God has shown me. It's what Christ has shown me. He has been a peacemaker in my life. He has been merciful towards me. When people ask you, why you and your girlfriend are not living together and they're just perplexed. You have a reason. I want to be pure in heart because that's what Christ is calling me to. When we're living humble and gentle lives and we're not putting people under our feet in order to move up in our careers and other people in the office see that or at the workplace see that and they're wondering why in the world aren't you throwing that person under the bus right now? You're saying, God has shown me mercy. Christ was humble. I'm imitating my Savior. You see, as you let your good works shine into the darkness of our society, you can then explain the source of the light you are emanating. And the source of that light is Christ himself. And as people see that, and as they hear your explanation, they can then glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray.